you would now take a copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Samuel. And we will look at 1 Samuel chapter 3 this evening. If you're using a pew Bible, it is on page 227. In just a moment, we will read the entirety of chapter 3 and the very first half of the first verse of chapter 4. We're dropping into the book of 1 Samuel tonight. Let me orient us to where we are. We're going to see Samuel called as a prophet. So far, this is what we know of him in this book. His mom, Hannah, was barren, and the Lord gave Samuel to her, and she dedicated him to the Lord. And so he's been raised near the tent of meeting. He's been in priestly service as a young boy, and he's been mentoring or being mentored by and serving the priest Eli. In this chapter this evening, we see Samuel go from being a young man in priestly service to being a prophet of the Lord. Before I read God's word, let us ask for his help in prayer once again. Would you join me in prayer? We do ask, our Heavenly Father, that you would feed us tonight on the bread of life, your Son, that as we look at your holy word, that we would come to know Christ, that our faith in him would be strengthened, and that our lives will be conformed to his image. So we ask tonight that you, by your Holy Spirit, through your word, you do a heart work in our lives that will bear fruit, the fruit of your spirit in our life, that we might be ambassadors for your son and live for your glory. We ask you to now do this through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of God from 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, here, am I, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. 
Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling at other times, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. This is a story in the Old Testament that I think a lot of kids love. I loved it as a kid, because here... We're not sure exactly how old Samuel is. He's probably maybe early adolescence. But I remember loving it as a kid because it's one of the stories that affirms to us and confirms to us that kids can know God. Kids can receive and understand truth. But we do need to be careful with the spiritual insight that sometimes our kids come up with. Recently, one of my kids was concerned about where our dog would go when he died, if he would go to heaven. And it was troubling one child, and their sibling responded with, well, our dog Zeke will go to heaven. And the sibling said, how do you know? And the other child told them, well, one time, very quietly, I asked Zeke if he believed in Jesus. And very quietly, in Spanish, he said he did. Well, we have a situation here in which Samuel is not offering his spiritual insight to Eli. Now, in fact, in a way, he's become the authority because he becomes 
the mouthpiece for God. It is not merely Samuel's assessment of Eli and his situation, but God has given him a word. And now the young man has stepped into the office of a prophet. So as we consider this chapter tonight, I have four headings for us. In the first three verses, I want us to see this. When the word is rare, the darkness grows. In verses 4 through 10 this evening, I want us to see that God will not leave his people without his word. And then in verses 11 through 18, the ministry of the word will be tested. And lastly this evening, I want us to consider in verses 19 to the beginning of chapter 4, the establishment of the prophetic office. Verses 1 through 3, when the word is rare, the darkness grows. There in verse 1, it says, the word of the Lord was rare, there was no frequent vision. This is a bad sign. This is the writer of 1 Samuel telling us that Israel is in spiritual decay and trouble. Later, the prophet Amos would say, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Well, what Amos was speaking of in his day is what we see here in 1 Samuel, a famine of the word. And it is a sign of God's disfavor and displeasure upon the people. There it says there's no frequent vision. The Hebrew word there does not require that there be a visual experience. But the vision from God was a way in which he revealed his will in order that people might have guidance and direction. And here is a situation that there was no prevalent revelation of God's will for his people. What's the reason why? Well, if you've been tracking in the book of 1 Samuel so far, in chapter 2, we learn of Eli's failures as the spiritual leader, as the priest. And here in verse 2 and 3, the, the writer gives a description of his failures in somewhat a symbolic way, a metaphoric way. It said that his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see. And then he goes on to say that the lamp of God had not yet gone out. The reason why God's people were headed towards darkness is that the spiritual leader of the nation had tolerated the darkness. He had tolerated it in his own family, his own sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests. He knew how they made a mockery of the priesthood, and he did not rightly discipline them. And now his failure has led to spiritual darkness and a growing darkness over God's people. And there it speaks of Eli's physical eyesight, but it's spiritual, as if he no longer could see the vision of God. It's no longer he couldn't discern. His eyes were growing dim. And it's almost as if the clock is running out. It, the writer references the, the, the setting is happening in one evening, the call of Samuel. 
and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. The lamp of God was a, a lamp, it's a piece of furniture, and it's in the holy place, just outside the most holy place there in the tent of meeting. It was to burn all night. And here, when God comes with his word to call Samuel, the lamp is starting to dim, but it hasn't gone out just yet. Now, I think the, the writer intends for us to, to see something here, both if Eli's physical eyes going out represents his spiritual condition, the writer wants us to see the lamp of God as God's revelation has been diminished, that God's revealing of his word has, has become less and less clear because of the darkness that is over God's people. And lamp here in other places of Scripture is used as a metaphor. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The, the writer of 1 Samuel is poetically describing the situation in which Samuel is called. And it's not a good one. The word of God is rare. The darkness is growing. But then Samuel, in verse 3, we see he's lying down in the temple of the Lord. His cot, his bunk, whatever it was, was separate from Eli's. And it was closer to the holy place. And it may have been that as in his priestly service that he was there dedicated to in the, in the tent of meeting, part of his job was to keep that lamp burning all night. It's most certain most, that his, part of his job was to care for Eli as he is aging. And we see that as he thinks Eli is calling him, Samuel jumps up and runs. But there's a contrast that's being drawn between Samuel and Eli. Samuel is nearer to the holy place. And in verse 3, the writer tells us that he's closer to the ark of God, the ark of the covenant. This is where the mercy seat was, where the presence of God is. This is the first mention of the ark of the covenant in 1 Samuel, and it's going to play a key role in the very next chapter, in chapter 4. But right now we know that Eli's outside the tent of meeting, Samuel's inside near where God comes and visits his people. Here's the contrast. But first, let's think about this. Has the darkness grown in your life because of the neglect of God's word? Do you know someone who was once near to the things of God, but it seemed to slip away? And correspondingly, it's been their relationship and their interaction and their receiving and learning and understanding and studying the Word of God. We live in a period of redemptive history in which God's Word has been revealed. It's been inscripturated. It's been recorded, preserved, and passed on through the church, through the ages. In Scripture, we have all the revelation we need for life and faith. But in our day, it is true as it was in Samuel's day, a neglect of the word will lead to darkness. We see this happen in denominations. When the word of God becomes rare, the darkness grows. We see it happen in churches. We see it happen in families. 
and in the lives of individuals. One of the critiques that people have about Reformed and Presbyterian folk and churches is that we're over-intellectual. That's a fair critique. Whenever we're majoring on the minors, whenever we're spending time on unhelpful speculation, but I would oppose that critique if it's because we spend too much time in the Word. If it's because we spend too much time committed to Bible study. And if our life together and our fellowship together and everything we do together revolves around the Word, it's a sign of God's favor. Because when the Word of God is rare, it's a sign of His disfavor, His judgment, and the darkness. We are people of the book, unashamedly and humbly. Because we have nowhere else to turn. There is no authority that we would claim for our lives as individuals and as members of a body together but the Word. So we give thanks for God's Word. We enjoy it. We seek it. We study it. And when we find that our appetite for it begins to wane, we go and ask God to do a work in our hearts, to revive the the love of his word. Next, in verses 4 through 10, I want us to see that God will not leave his people without his word. This is the actual call that comes to Samuel. It's a memorable story if you grew up in church and in Sunday school. You've seen it acted out maybe with puppets or felt board or in a vacation Bible school. It's a, it's a paneled sequence. The writer could have just said, God called Samuel at first. He thought it was Eli. He went to Eli, and Eli said, that's the Lord calling you. But instead, the Holy Spirit, through the human author, builds attention here. So the Lord called Samuel, verse 4. Then, verse 6, then the Lord called again. And then, verse 8, and then the Lord called again a third time. The tension builds. And there's something that eventually at some point, you don't want to be too hard on the young man, but Samuel comes across as a little dense. Over and over again, going to Eli. But verse 7, we get the explanation why. It says, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, in verse, in chapter 2, it said that Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, the priests who were not serving God, it says that they did not know the Lord. And so here, once again, there's a contrast that's drawn between the, the players here in Israel, those who were involved with the priesthood. But it would seem that the way that Hophni and Phinehas didn't know the Lord is different from the way that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. From what we know and the way he's presented in the book of Samuel to this point, Little Samuel is a worshiper. It seems like whatever little light he had and whatever little light remained, Samuel was walking in. So when it says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord, it's that he, this is where he goes from 
a believer to the office of a prophet. God calls him to be his prophet here. And the word of the Lord had, been, had not yet been revealed to him, but now it is. And so in verse 8, it goes from a voice that calls out Samuel to now, it said, and the Lord came and stood. And the Lord called out, Samuel, Samuel. This is a, a, a theophany. God is appearing at the bedside of little Samuel. His name is called out twice for emphasis. This happens throughout the Old Testament where the Lord will, will in some way reveal himself in a way that is visibly taken in by Abraham and occasionally the patriarchs. You think of Jacob wrestling with God. And here Samuel has his moment where he encounters the living God in a way that he will never forget. We also see it in the New Testament and where Saul is a persecutor of the church and Christ himself knocked Saul off his horse and says, Saul, Saul, in Acts 9. And here is Samuel, Samuel. Now to be clear, this is not the normal Christian experience. And you, some of you, that is a relief to know that the normal Christian experience is not that God is going to wake you up and call your name audibly. It seems like it happens a lot in the Bible. And some might think, well, maybe if I just had more faith, I would experience something like that. But when you really look at how many times this happens in the Bible, there's decades and hundreds of years in between these stories. And so there's Moses who encounters God at the burning bush, and then there's generations that come before Samuel encounters God at his bedside. It wasn't the normal experience for God's people. It was for those in whom God had a special place in redemptive history, a special call, and Samuel here does. God is going to use him as the kingmaker, the one who will anoint, the one who will be the great-great-grandfather to the Messiah. And so we need to be careful about the way we think about Samuel's call in our life. One preacher put it helpful this way. Maybe we shouldn't think about things from Samuel's perspective, but think about things from God's perspective. What does Samuel's call teaches about the God who reveals himself in his word? Well, one thing in this evening... We know that he's a patient God. He's patient. Samuel hasn't known the voice of God, and he thinks it's Eli, and God is patient with him over and over again. It is God's will that he would be known by his word, but God understands that we are finite and that what he has revealed in his word it will take our entire lives to study and to learn of. So I think there's something of an encouragement that God is patient with us. 
his revelation is progressive. He didn't lay it all out in Genesis. He built upon the revelation of his plans and purposes for his people and for the Redeemer throughout Scripture. And our understanding of that is progressive as well. Progressive illumination. God has revealed himself. We can't take it all in at once. But the light grows. The light grows a little more and a little more. Growth in Christian maturity means pursuing a little more light instead of going back to the darkness. Learning to love and study God's word. And I know that many Christians and many new Christians have probably said, I'm going to do that. And if you're doing your daily Bible reading this year, chances are, like reading through the Bible in 365 days, this is the time of year where you've reached Leviticus. And not just any part of Leviticus, but the part about discharges in Leviticus. And at that point, you have to say, God, what does this have to do with me and you and living for your glory? How does this apply to me raising Christian children? And our Heavenly Father doesn't just say, dense, ignorant, sinful, but he's patient with us. And a little more understanding, and a little more understanding, and the light grows. Progressive illumination because our sanctification is progressive. That what we understand we'll be accountable to, and we are to apply and obey to our lives. And so if we were to understand from Genesis to Revelation all at once, that's a lot of obedience for recovering sinners. And so we have progressive illumination because we have progressive sanctification. And the God who will be known by his word is patient in us, is with us as we grow in our understanding. He's not hard on us when we're dense. Verses 11 through 18, I wanted to see the ministry of the word will be tested. Verses 11 through 13, look back there with me now. It says, then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. Here, this is a confirmation of the judgment that was to come on Eli's house. In chapter 2, it came through an unknown prophet, an unknown man of God. We don't know who he was. He shows up, has an oracle of judgment against Eli, and because of his sons, and then he slips away. And now, the Lord will establish Samuel as a prophet, but think about the first sermon he has to preach. The first message he has is to his mentor, to Eli. Well, this is similar to Isaiah's call to ministry. Isaiah encounters the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. We see him, him called. He, he sees a, a, a vision of God, 
as the Lord's train of his robe fills the temple. And out of this glorious vision, Isaiah is given a hard message to bring to the people. This is the same that happens here to Samuel. It's a test. It's Samuel's Timothy moment. Timothy was a young pastor that was a protege. He was the spiritual son of the Apostle Paul. And then we learn in Paul's letters to Timothy that Timothy struggled with timidity and that he was fearful. And Paul has to say, no, don't let anyone despise you because of your youth. And Timothy, you are to fan into flame the gift of God. This is Samuel's Timothy's moment. He is devoted to Eli. And it says that he's afraid. I think that his fear, it's hard to say what was the fear. Matthew Henry suggests, and I think it's helpful, he says, he was just afraid to grieve the old man. He knew of Eli's sin. There's a good chance he knew of the judgment that was to come. And he cared for him in such a way that he didn't want to unnecessarily bring grief upon grief. But he's tested. And he faithfully delivers the word to Eli. The ministry of the word will be tested in our lives. Quite often it's tested not long after leaving church. It's similar to the words of, of Satan in the garden to Adam and Eve, did God really say? It'll be tested in our families. It's tested in churches. It's tested in denominations. And many of you have seen it in your life as a Christian, how the Word of God was tested and how churches have failed to be faithful to God's Word and how entire denominations have gone towards the darkness and away from the light. There's many of the, the Christian denominations in our nation that have experienced this testing and have failed. There's one global denomination, the United Methodist Church, that is at a crossroads. They're at a crossroads right now concerning sexual, sexual ethics in the Bible. And what's happened with those brothers and sisters is that the Americans have not done well staying faithful to God's Word, the North American United Methodist Church, but their denomination in other parts of the world has remained faithful, particularly in Africa. The Methodist Church is faithful brothers and sisters holding on to the light of God's Word, uncompromising, but they're being tested. And someone went to some of the, our brothers and sisters there and said, you know, if you don't kind of get on board with the direction of the United Methodists here in the U.S., you know, a lot of your financial support is probably going to dry up. And yesterday, Dr. Jerry Kula, Dean of Theology at the United Methodist University in Liberia, said this, please understand me when I say the vast majority of African United Methodists will never, ever trade Jesus and the truth of the Bible for money. The Word of God is precious 
to that dear brother, to that theologian. We need to learn from his example. When the word of God is tested, we won't trade it for anything. We won't trade it for anything. Lastly, verses 19 through the beginning of chapter 4. Here in the call of Samuel, we see the establishment of the prophetic office. The establishment of the prophetic office. God, under the old covenant, will lead his people through prophets, kings, and priests. We see the priest here, and the priests have failed. God is raising up a prophet who will then anoint the king. In verse 19, it says of Samuel, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. That means that when he spoke, it happened. It was fulfilled. And this is a confirmation of what Moses told the people of God in Deuteronomy 18. He said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And then the people, you could almost hear them say, how do we know if it's a prophet from you or not? And in Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22, it says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. But here with young Samuel, on through the rest of his ministry, it says that not one of his words fall to the ground because it was God speaking through him. And the word of God goes from rare in verse 1 of chapter 3 to then we see in verse 1 of chapter 4 that it spreads from the north to the south. That Samuel ministers God's word across the land and he is established. God will not leave his people without a prophet. Samuel will die. Before Samuel dies, he will anoint David as king. But in 2 Samuel, David sins grievously. So what does God do? He sends Nathan, the prophet, to rebuke God's king. Then later, in the life of God's people, they are wayward. They're wandering from God, and God raises up Elijah, and Elisha to follow. And then even in exile, God does not leave them without a prophetic word. And Daniel has visions while in exile. We could go through all the prophets. Isaiah, one of the most prolific writing prophets, tells of the suffering servant. Joel will tell of the day when God's spirit will be poured out on God's people. And Malachi, the close of our, uh, the last book in our English Old Testaments, Malachi says, I will send you the Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And after a brief period of silence, the spirit of Elijah comes on John the Baptist, crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the prophet. Moses was a prophet. Samuel was a prophet. Elijah was a prophet. Isaiah was a prophet. John the Baptist was a prophet, all pointing the way to the prophet. 
Hebrews 1, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. It's the wrong application to come away from 1 Samuel chapter 3 and say, if God would just speak to me the way that He spoke to Samuel, then I would believe. Then I could stand up. Then I wouldn't back down. And Samuel himself, if he could, he would rebuke you. And he would say, you have greater light than I ever had. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Samuel would say, the word of God is not rare. It is available. And you have a perspective that he did not have. He longed to see and know. It is clear to us that it is the word that became flesh, the word that was with God from the beginning, the word that is the light of all men, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is who we meet as we devote ourselves to the Word of God. Let us ask God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you have not left us to our own imagination. You have not left us to our sin. You have not left us to craft ideas about you. But you have sent your Son that we might know the triune God, that we might be forgiven and reconciled. And knowing you is eternal life. So we ask that you would stir our appetites for your word and that in it we would meet your son over and over again. That we would go from understanding to understanding. That you would show us where the darkness resides and renew our minds in order that you might receive all glory in your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.